welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition, I want to make our listening audience aware of some articles that I have written. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com. That's one word, jimandrewsbooks.com. You will discover there some articles that I've produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. I'm just happy to share them with you for whatever benefit they may have. We continue our exposition of the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 10. The author is continuing to emphasize to these Jewish Christians the superiority of everything that we have in Christ. He wants to stabilize them in their faith because some of them are thinking about retreating back into Judaism, back into the worship of the Old Testament with all of its rituals and its ironic priesthood. kind of reminds me sometimes of Protestants who've one time been Catholic want to go back to the ritual and to the pageantry of the Roman Catholic Church, and that was similar to what was happening to these people. And our author's trying to emphasize that in Christ, everything is vastly superior you need to understand that. In order to get his point across, however, he's had to explain to these Jewish believers the nature of Christ's high priestly role versus the nature of the high priestly role of those of the Levitical order or those of Aaron. The Levitical priesthood of the Old Covenant was temporary. It was intended, he shows, to be superseded by another priesthood which was unfamiliar to them, the priesthood of Melchizedek, a figure mentioned back in Genesis. The priesthood of Melchizedek is that of Jesus Christ. And unlike that of Levi, this is a perpetual priesthood exercised in heaven itself. Jesus is a mediator in the presence of God. That transcends anything that they have on earth and the Levitical priesthood. He underscores the fact that the Levitical priesthood was just a type or a foreshadowing of this greater priesthood. It was not anything that could really bring us into the presence of God. So Christ is superior in his person. He's superior in his priesthood. He's superior in his offering, not the blood of bulls and goats, but himself. Those were mere types and shadows. Under the old covenant, in themselves, they could not make anyone right before God. Those sacrifices that they observed under the old covenant serve a purpose, but they did not remit sin. Verse 3, chapter 10. It's just a reminder year after year that we are, in fact, sinners, that we're alienated from God, and that we need for that estrangement, which stems from sin, to be cleared out. And that can only happen through the atoning offering of Jesus Christ. 
Now, our issues today are not the same as theirs. Nevertheless, there is an application which I've made before and I will make again for any who think that somehow any old way to God will work. You don't get that from the Scriptures. The only place you can get that is from sheer religious speculation, just sitting down and making it up in your own mind. There is no authority for that whatsoever. If you're willing to let the issue be arbitrated by the Scriptures, you need go no further than this. There, thinking about retreating from Christ, and our author is telling them throughout this whole book, that would be fatal. That would be apostasy. You can't go there. That will not work. The blood of bulls and goats, he tells them, cannot take away sin, and that's your problem, and that's still our problem today. There's one mediator between God and man, and it's not whoever you want it to be. It is Jesus Christ. And there's one offering that will take away our sins, and that's not the blood of bulls or goats, and that's not your good works or anything else that you can conceive of. It is the atoning offering of Jesus Christ, which will take away our sins. To strengthen his point about the absolute necessity of a better atonement than what was merely provisional and ceremonial afforded to the worshiper under the Old Testament system, our author appeals to the Hebrew Scriptures. He goes back to Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, which we mentioned as the time expired in our last program. This is what we call a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy where, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the language of the psalmist, in this case David, transcends himself and becomes the voice of the Messiah. There it is written, Therefore, when he, the Messiah, comes into the world... He says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, that's not what God wants, but a body thou hast prepared for me, the Messiah says through David, it's the Spirit of God speaking through him in language that transcends him and represents the echo of the Son of God. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast taken no pleasure. He's taken no pleasure not because he didn't ordain them, but simply because they're ineffective for the purpose of taking away sins. God knew that. They're just symbols. They're shadows. The substance is in Christ. Then I said, the Messiah, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me, I've come to do thy will, O God. The author goes on in verse 8 to say, After saying above, as he exegetes the psalm, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. And then he says, Behold, I have come to do thy will. Our author says, Do you know what that means? It means he's taking away the first, the first covenant, in order to establish the second. The statement in the roll of the book it is written of me means, I take it, that it was prophesied in the sacred writings of the Old Testament that Christ would come to lay his life down for the sins of the world. And no prophecy in the Old Testament or roll of the book is clearer or more impressive than Isaiah 53, which speaks so movingly of that very thing. In verses 8 and 9, the author commenting on the more pertinent details of the text as they relate to his argument, the author highlights how the words of the prophecy clearly point to the termination of ritualized offerings of the Old Covenant. The words replace it with the atoning offering of Christ's own body. That atoning sacrifice of Christ is the foundation of the New Covenant. 
In verse 10, the author now puts his cursor directly upon the prophetic declaration in the passage just quoted, Behold, I come to do thy will, O God. That will or purpose of God in Christ, that will by which the Father sent the Son as his servant in the flesh to lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, that is the means by which all of us who have received Christ have been set apart or sanctified, and the means by which we've been rendered holy in the sight of God once for all. By this sacrifice we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all, the text says. No other sacrifice will ever be needed at any time for any reason whatsoever. It is done. Nothing needs to be added or repeated, but in the Old Testament everything had to be added and repeated. That is why any notion of repeating again and again and again the sacrifice of Christ in the Eucharist, as the Lord's table is called in liturgical churches, that's why it's so unbiblical. We call His atonement the finished work of Christ for a reason. We call it the finished work of Christ because it's finished, and it is an offense to His completed, non-repeatable work. It's an offense to the all-sufficiency of His atonement to suggest to people by our religious rituals that if we do not partake of the Eucharist or the ongoing sacrifice of Christ, supposedly ongoing, through the mystery of what is called transubstantiation, we are lost for want of that sacrifice. That's precisely the kind of error our author wants to blow up. Now in verse 11 he elaborates, And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. He's referring to the practice under the Old Covenant, which some of you want to go back to. But he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins, for all time sat down at the right hand of God, and he's waiting until his enemies shall be made footstools for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified or set apart for God. What he says here, he has said before. So why repeat it? Same reason I repeat it. Some things you've got to say over and over again until finally somebody says, I get it. When one is combating a stubborn error held in place by the prejudice of long tradition, one has to follow the advertising rule of six and it sticks. That is to say, one keeps exposing the error from different angles until hopefully the light comes in on the truth and it sticks. And that's what our author has been doing. Contrasting, again and again, the once-for-all offering of the body of Christ for our sins. Contrasting that with the ritual cultus of the Old Testament, in which every high priest under that system stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same old ritual sacrifices, which, he says, in effect, I remind you, can never take away sins. But that's not so with the sacrifice of our great high priest in heaven. Why would you ever want to turn back from Christ? He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, his own body, not the blood of a bull or a goat, he sat down at the right hand of God, in the Oriental conception, the highest place of power in the court of a monarch. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. What was he doing sitting down, waiting from that time onward until his enemies? The Father made the footstool of his feet. You see, Jesus is not only our mediator before the throne of God in heaven, no mediator like that on earth. 
He is our once-for-all, all-sufficient atoning sacrifice for our sins, and He's also the Lord of Lords, and He is the King of Kings. Never forget that. At His feet, every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to bow, and every tribe, tongue, and nation, and every human being who has lived or ever will live in the future until He comes, will bow before Him and confess Him as Lord. He is not in heaven waiting to make another sacrifice for our sins. The only thing that he's awaiting is the signal to return to earth in glory. For, our author declares, by one offering, one offering, one offering, he is perfected, he is finished for all time, the sanctification of those who are set apart or rendered holy to God. Again, when he says he is perfected, he does not mean that you and I, who are in Christ, who have received him by faith, are morally perfected. What he has done is perfected our standing in the sight of God. He's perfected our standing by the atoning value of his self-sacrifice. Once and for all, he's abolished under the atoning blood, the cleansing blood of his sacrifice, our defilement in the sight of God. And in doing that, he has taken away, if we believe him and we trust him, trust in the efficacy of his sacrifice, he's taken away our accusing conscience that caused us either to dumb down the requirements of a holy God or to distort the nature of God or else run and hide from God or a bit of all of the above. Now our standing is perfected. We are holy in the sight of God. We are not whole, we're still messed up, we're still in this flesh. But our defilement is removed, and we are clothed legally in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The atoning sacrifice of Christ has laid the essential foundation for all the redemptive work that needs to be done. God will at last bring us holy and blameless into his presence, not because We in ourselves are holy and blameless, but because we are clothed in the perfect righteousness of his Son, which is legally imputed to us who trust in him. No such thing in the old covenant, that is, as a result of those sacrifices and as a result of the mediation of that priesthood. Can't happen, didn't happen. Those in the old covenant who trusted in God, I say again, were saved because the blood of Christ was applied retroactively to them. I like to say they were saved on credit. So in verses 15 and 16, he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, The Holy Spirit bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and upon their mind I shall write them. Then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin, no necessity of it. So in verses 15 and 16, he elaborates what he means, but he's perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. This might be a good place to explain something that is confusing to many Christians, the manner of regeneration in the Old Testament. Under the law or the old covenant, Israelites as a whole were given the laws of God, but they were armed only with the flesh, which is no armament at all, except for a remnant who got it, who walked with God by faith, 
and were renewed by the Holy Spirit. They were the exceptions. They were not the rule. They walked with God, the Abrahams, the Isaacs, the Jacobs, the prophets. They walked with God because they were equipped to. But the vast majority of Israelites under the Old Covenant, they were devout or pious only in the ceremonial sense. They kept the law, if they did at all, in an external way. That is, they conformed to its letter. But they were unable to keep the spirit of the law. Why? Because they didn't have a regenerate heart. That's why the Lord says, concerning the new covenant in verse 16, quoting from Jeremiah, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. I'll do something for them that's not true now. I will put my laws upon their heart, and in their minds I will write them. That's a work of regeneration that takes place under the new covenant. And here is justification, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Under the new covenant, get this, for this is crucial, every single member of the new covenant community is born again. I didn't say every single member of a local church. I said every single member of the new covenant community It's called the church with a capital C. Everyone is born again or regenerated. Every single one has a renewed heart with God's law inscribed on the inside. But under the old covenant, the people of God were his people by national covenant. They were not his people in spirit. Under the new covenant, the people of God are all his people by individual covenant and all from the heart. Israel as a whole was God's people, but individually. The vast majority, as I've emphasized, were not believing people. But in the church, again, with the capital C, not the local church, every single member is a born-again member of the family of God, indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they are people upon whom God's laws have been written upon their hearts and in their minds. They are inscribed. Now let's return from that digression to the argument. Verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things... Our lawless deeds, there's no longer any offering for sin. The plain implication is that the sin barrier that keeps the worshiper at a distance from God is removed under the new covenant. The new covenant, which is instated with Christ, who is our great high priest. There's no more offering necessary, for he's not only the high priest, he is the offering. So clearly, brethren, to shrink back from Christ, he's saying, and to re-immerse oneself in the ritual religion of Judaism, That would be an act of apostasy. That's what's on his mind. He does not express it immediately. But for the moment, he takes a more positive and hortatory tack. He urges them to lay firmer hold on Christ. Basically, he calls upon his readers. In fact, he calls upon any who are wavering in their faith in Christ to remind themselves. Remind themselves of what we have in Christ and to draw near rather than draw back. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place, that's the one in heaven, by the blood of Jesus to come right into the presence of God, to come by a new and living way, not the dead way, the blood of bulls and goats, but the new and living way, for he's the resurrected Christ. He inaugurated it for us through the veil, the veil being his flesh. That veil in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, really was just a shadow, it was just a type of his flesh. And by the offering of his flesh, he allows us, all of us are believer priests, to go into the presence of God. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, who's that? The Lord Jesus. Now we can draw near to God. So he says in verse 22, let's draw near with a sincere heart, pure heart, 
Let's do it with full assurance of faith. We have our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water, referring to the atonement of Christ. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. Let's not go around forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some is, but let's be encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So here's the practical conclusion of all the theological exposition of the high priestly mediatorial work of Christ that he's been engaged in. Don't back off. Draw near to Christ and hold fast. This access to God through Christ is called a living way because Christ our sacrifice was raised from the dead. Now Christ lives forevermore. He lives to mediate and make intercession for us in heaven itself. Now, that's not to imply, by the way, that Christ stands in heaven day after day having to plead for our forgiveness before a reluctant God. No, that's not the idea at all. It's simply to say that by his very presence as our combined high priest and blood offering, he is our living intercessor, not now by what he is doing or saying, but just by virtue of who he is and what he has already done. So we have confidence to enter the holy place. We're not like Adam and Eve and we feel like we've got to run from God. Our sins have been dismissed. They've been leached out by the blood of Christ. So our conscience allows us center boldness to come into the presence of a holy God. Not because we are good, but because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all defilement in God's sight. Because of the blood of Christ covering our sins, our conscience does not accuse us. We know the mess we are but we know that we are legally excused from all defilement. The issue is not what we are, as we are, but what we are in Christ. And we are people washed in His atoning blood. And therein we are safe, and we can enter with confidence into the Holy of Holies where God is, that is, into the throne room of heaven itself. And since we have a great high priest, our heavenly mediator in the person of Christ over the whole house of God, he tells these wavering believers in verse 22, let's not draw back from faith and from Christ. On the contrary, see what you have in Christ, and let's draw near to God with a sincere, a genuine as opposed to an insincere heart, and do so with full assurance of faith rather than a faltering, half-convinced faith. It's a certain place where faith is a choice. You're going to believe this, or you're not going to believe it. Decide. Well, since we have all this going for us, our author says, there's no reason that you and I cannot approach God in bold confidence. For the thing that makes that confidence possible is having and knowing by faith that our hearts are sprinkled clean, that they're purified from defilement in the sight of God and in our own moral consciousness, cleansed from an evil or self-accusing conscience and knowing that our body has been washed with pure water. The idea here is that our whole person is cleansed before God. There's no pollution at any level that denies us access to God. As for the clause having our body washed with pure water, I think surely this has to refer to the same kind of cleansing that Ezekiel prophesied in chapter 36 when he foresaw the national conversion of Israel in his times. I will take you from the nations, I will gather you from all lands, and I will bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water upon you. Not ritual water. You will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit within you, 
I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a living and renewed heart, to place the hard and dead heart unresponsive to God. We'll come back to that. My friends, in the next study, God bless you and have a wonderful day. The Final Word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word, 4565 Carmen Drive, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97035. Our email address is info at thefinalwordradio.com. Our phone number is 503-699-9840. If this program has ministered to you, tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach. (laughs) 